This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's quote. Many of you will recognize that song. That was Getty Lee of the famous band Rush and the chorus from the song Limelight. Getty Lee was the lead singer and bassist in the Canadian rock band Rush. Rush is an award-winning rock band, which began its ascent to fame and notoriety in 1968. Admittedly, I didn't realize they were quite that old, but a great band nonetheless. And the original trio is not the trio which the world knows and loves. While Lee joined the band almost immediately after its inception, the other two members, Alex Lifeson and Neil Peart, joined much later. Neil Peart is today's quotes lyricist, while Lee sang the song itself. From 1974 to their final tour in 2015, these three were responsible for almost every instrument and lyric you hear in their iconic music. They are a classic rock band in that they had a drummer, a guitarist, and a bassist. And rock bands can expand from there and usually then include someone who plays the keys or the keyboard, piano type of thing. And sometimes another guitarist or a lead guitarist or something like that. So you can have a trio, that's kind of the classic construct, or a quartet, which includes a keyboard player. And then you can add, you can turn it into a quintet by adding another guitarist. Sometimes you'll have a percussionist, but that's kind of the structure of, of classic rock bands. And the lyrics for today come from a song you've doubtlessly heard called Limelight. Limelight was released as part of Rush's 1981 album, Moving Pictures. And I grew up with this song playing over the radio and seemingly all over the place. And this doesn't surprise me as it's a really, really good song with a very unique sound, as I'm sure you heard in the short clip that I've played. And if you know the song, you know that that sound is ubiquitous through the whole song. And that sound is very representative of the band, and it's not the kind of song you forget once it's wormed its way into your brain. I suspect, after you finish this episode, you'll probably go off and find yourself humming this or going to listen to it or watch it. And I don't know about you, but there are plenty of songs that I've listened to for years. And know the rhythm and the tone, but not necessarily the detailed lyrics. And I think this is particularly true for songs that I've heard a lot. And there must be some kind of neurological phenomenon where you think you know the lyrics because you know every rise and pause in the lyrics. But when you actually read the words or listen closely enough to hear them, you go, oh, that's what they're saying. And if you're a neurologist or scientist and you know what this is, let me know. I'm curious. But that's how this song was for me for years. I've heard it countless times and in whole and in part. And it's in all kinds of movies and shows, but until I actually read the lyrics for some unknown reason a few years ago, I had a hard time understanding them, or they just never registered as lyrics that I might want to know. And then I saw the lyrics, and I thought to myself, well, those are fantastic. That chorus is great. You'll hear, if you listen to it again, that it's, it's even a little Shakespearean. And they are really, really good lyrics, and they tell a really interesting story. Because I'm guessing maybe you have the same struggle that I did, or I do, I'm going to play them again, but I'll read them first so you know exactly what's being sung by Lee that was written by Pert. So here they are. All the world's indeed a stage. We are merely players, performers, and portrayers. 
each another's audience outside the gilded cage. So here's the song one more time. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of dark, right? I mean, I think it is. Music for me is, is kind of part art and part poetry. And you've heard me discuss poetry on the show before. In fact, I have another explication coming soon. And you know, therefore, that just as much as the words themselves are important to a poem, so too is the delivery. If you've ever been to or listened to a poetry slam event, you know exactly what I mean. The tempo, the rhythm, the volume, and the emphasis of the words can completely alter their meaning. A gravelly, slow delivery changes the interpretation of a poem significantly when compared to a rapid, high-pitched delivery. And it's part of the reason why you'll hear people say a certain actor is perfect, quote-unquote, for a role. Some of that is related to their look, their mannerisms, and their acting style, but their voice also matters. Picture, for example, Reese Witherspoon, No offense to her, of course, it's just a point of comparison. Picture Reese Witherspoon delivering the famous line, Some folks call it a sling blade, I call it a Kaiser blade. That line was said by Billy Bob Thornton, delivering it in the movie Sling Blade. And if you know the line, you know that Billy Bob Thornton's delivery of that line is part of what makes it so iconic. And you can imagine that somebody like Reese Witherspoon, or really anybody, it doesn't matter who, anybody not Billy Bob Thornton, wouldn't have had the same effect on that line. It's why Marlon Brando was so good in all the movies that he was in. The delivery of his lines was perfect. It, it's why every famous actor is who they are. The Robert De Niro's of the world. The George Clooney's. The Brad Pitt's. The, the Julia Roberts. The Susan Sarandon's. The Helena Bonham Carter's. Imagine someone other than Helena Bonham Carter playing Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd. I don't know that there's anybody else that could do that and deliver those lines in the way that she did. It's incredible. Right? So the the way that the words are said matters just as much as what is actually said. And this song is dark, right? It depicts the challenge of being a rock star. But it does so without sounding kind of whiny or eliciting the, oh, poor baby response that we sometimes give to famous people. And once you know, it's kind of hard to dismiss the song. It's a great rock song, don't get me wrong. It's got some great guitar riffs, the drumming is excellent, the music video is entertaining, but... The message of the song is actually pretty great. And just prior to this, just before the chorus here that we're talking about, Lee delivers a line that's actually great. He says, Living in a fisheye lens, caught in the camera eye, I have no heart to lie, I can't pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend. Now isn't that profound, right? I think we, I think we all know that feeling. Have you ever been introduced to someone? Someone when you're not really in the mood to be introduced to someone new or someone whom you don't care to be introduced to. You just, you can't muster a care to give to this new person. Maybe you're overwhelmed. Maybe the work week's been rough. Maybe your kids have been difficult or maybe you just don't like the person that's doing the introducing. Therefore, you don't expect you're going to like the individual. But the idea that socially you have to pretend that this stranger is some long-awaited friend. Oh, hi. How are you? Nice to meet you. Thanks for the introduction. And then you feel compelled to engage in conversation and on and on and on. Now imagine that that is your daily life. And I think we can all bridge the empathy gap here with with celebrities and stars of the various types, at least on an intellectual level, if we imagine the very worst parts of actually being 
that star. Photographers and journalists chasing us to and fro, camping outside our homes, following us around town as we attempt to live our daily lives. Fans constantly interrupting our routine to ask for autographs or selfies. Unending requests for this or that. And I'm sure that that's exhausting. And that's what the band is talking about here. And imagine your day today. Okay, go back to the morning. Maybe you're listening to this first thing in the morning. Think about yesterday. Doesn't matter. Imagine a day with that overlaid atop it. Maybe you got into the car to go to work or to take your children to school. And imagine a photographer waiting outside your door for the moment you leave. Photographs of you and your child as you get into the car or you as you get into the car to go to work. And perhaps you went to the grocery store or the dentist and were unceremoniously jumped by a fan asking for you to sign three things and for them and for their friends who are huge fans, etc., etc. What if you were trying to enjoy a cup of coffee or a meal out? only to be interrupted mid-meal by someone stepping into your field of view to take your picture. And imagine this day in and out for, I don't know, well, forever, potentially, depending on how big a star you are. Good luck living anything that would even resemble a quote-unquote normal life. And that is what Rush is portraying with this song. I can't pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend. Think about that. That's what every fan wants, right? They probably know everything about you where you were born, what you did before you were famous. They have a favorite song or book or thing you've done, maybe one or more that they don't like, and they want to tell you about it. They want your time and your attention, not maliciously, but because they're legitimately excited to meet you. For them, you are one in a million. For you, they are identical to the last million. But you're expected to pretend as if this stranger is a long-awaited friend. And the man who wrote these lyrics, Neil Peart, said in a 2007 interview that the song was meant to portray, quote, feeling isolated amidst chaos and adulation. That's a pretty eloquent way to put that, isn't it? Adulation, right? The idea that you are loved, you are adored, people follow you around and want everything to do with you. And there's chaos everywhere. Every time you walk outside, people are screaming, camera flashes are going off. People want to shake your hand, people want to shoulder up next to you and take a selfie. And yet somehow you manage to feel isolated. Maybe this is a completely foreign concept to you. When I'm I'm not famous, maybe you are, but if you're not, this might be a completely foreign concept to you. We see the paparazzi chasing someone down one of the one of the streets in Hollywood as they go to and fro, right? Maybe they're on Rodeo Drive and they're going shopping. And they're being followed from store to store by camera people, taking pictures, asking questions, generally blocking their their path. Imagine, just think about how frustrating it must be to try to be walking from point A to point B. And camera people are slowly backing up, tripping over each other, just impeding your general path. Imagine how long it would take for that to get frustrating. Probably not very long. And I can't help but feel a little bit for Neil and Lee and Lifeson and for every other performer, for that matter. But maybe you don't feel that way. The quote is still good. It comes, it's at least the first part of the quote, is derived from two lines spoken by Jacques in Shakespeare's As You Like It from the 16th century. In it, Jacques plays a cynical character and he delivers the iconic lines at the beginning of a a great speech where he says, All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And one man, in his time, plays many parts. 
and great art imitates other art. Arguably, everything is derivative, and certainly this chorus is at least partially derived from this quote. It's highly unlikely that Neil Peart had not read Shakespeare, was not familiar with this line, this poem, when he wrote the lyrics. He says, performers and portrayers, each another's audience outside the gilded cage. So Pert took these words, hundreds of years old, and brought them forward to today and used them to describe the challenges of stardom. Clearly, the music and the lyrical style was a hit. In fact, it ranked number 435 of 500 on Rolling Stone's greatest songs of all time, right smack, interestingly, between Carly Rae Jepsen's Call Me Maybe at number 436 and the Ramones' Sheena is a Punk Rocker at 434. Say what you will about the list, but the fact that the song is in there at all says it speaks to a lot of people, myself included. And Pert refers to a gilded cage, right? That we are all in a gilded cage. Somebody is outside the cage looking in at us. And certainly, for stars more than others, that cage is larger, that cage has more viewers. Most of us live lives of relative insignificance. And again, we've talked about this before, and that's not meant to be a derogatory statement about your life or my life or anybody's life. We're just not particularly significant in the broad scheme of humanity. We're individuals. We matter to the people that we're close to. We do little things throughout our lives that are significant to certain people. But on the grand scheme of the human stage, in the trajectory of mankind, most of us are relatively insignificant. For example, in some 50-plus years after this podcast begins, I don't necessarily expect that people are going to remember my name. The way some 50-plus years after Rush began, plenty of people know the name Getty Lee, or Neil Peart, or Alex Lifeson. Sure, those are big fans, but I don't even know if I have those people. And I don't know that I will, and I don't necessarily care. What the, the point of this is, is that the cage that Pert and Lee are referencing in this song is different for different people. But from the outside, whether you are broadly significant to mankind as a whole or locally significant to the people that you're closest with, there's a cage. And people are outside that cage looking in. And to them, you live in a gilded cage, a cage that is adorned with gold. The fact is, it's a cage. It looks great to somebody on the outside. They get to look at you and they go, wow, that's amazing. What a great life. To you, it feels like a cage. It's a cage nonetheless. And I think part of the reason that I like this song is because it's so raw and honest. Sure, Pert, Lee, and Lifeson made millions and millions of dollars as members of Rush. Sure, it's easy to play a tiny violin for the poor millionaires living the, quote, universal dream, right? Which is another line from the song. Who hasn't wanted fame and fortune? I'd argue we all dream of it from time to time. And I think what I take away is that often it's more the fortune part that we want than the fame part. Fame comes with expectations and scrutiny, judgment, and a nearly complete lack of empathy. If you have heard me talking about this and at any point rolled your eyes and gone, oh, Matt, I can't believe you did a quote from a band that made millions of dollars and you're crying for them, right? Nobody feels bad for them. If you've had that thought, and I did when I first read these lyrics, wait just a minute, Rush, the famous band, the band that still to this day is played around the world, I'm supposed to feel bad because they live in a gilded cage? Whatever. But what we can take away from this is that while fame may not lead us to default to empathy, famous people are still people. They still have dreams and fears and feelings, 
And while we can be a bit envious, maybe a bit skeptical of feeling terribly bad for them in their often elaborate lifestyles, it doesn't negate their perspectives. And while the cage may be gilded, as I said, it's a cage nonetheless. A cage in which most of us would struggle to live and find balance as well. So pity, perhaps, is not the right emotion, and I'm not even sure that's what Lee and Pert were calling for with this song, but a degree of understanding, maybe, and recognition of humanity can take us a long way towards acknowledging our similarities. Minus a couple zeros on our bank accounts, we may not be all that different than some of these folks. So what do you think? Is there empathy to be had for millionaire rock stars? Should we hold them to a different level of social expectation than other people? What is that expectation? How do we define it? What do we do with it? And I'm not sure I know the answer to any of those questions, but I certainly would love to hear from you and your thoughts on them. Maybe Rush isn't who you feel bad for, but maybe it's another star. Right? Maybe it's another music icon or movie star or or TV actor. Do you judge them? Do you question them? Do you look askance when they bemoan their plight on their fan-filled social media feeds? These are, of course, rhetorical questions, to be sure, but maybe they're worth considering. Maybe it's worth taking a look in the mirror and considering that at some point, that person gets up in the morning too, and as the old saying goes, puts their pants on one leg at a time. They do, and maybe their life is not as easy as it looks from the outside. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app, or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod, or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.